I've been a founder all my life, been an investor, angel investor the last few years, but fundraising sucks, man. Fundraising is horrible. It's a necessary evil. It'll typically take like four to six months to do a funding round. And for that time period, sort of the founder's attention and energy is sucked away from the business. It's incredibly distracting. It actually hurts the business. And so, you know, we're trying to make it a little bit better, save time, right? Save hours, turn four months into two weeks. And if we could do that, that's like an enormous quality of life change. It saves an entire quarter of the founder's time and they can focus on the business. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome back to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. My guest today is Ollie Moyes, one of the most prolific entrepreneurs that we've ever had on the show. He is the co-founder of a number of companies, including Peanut Labs, which was sold to Research Now for $30 million, and Stream Labs, which was acquired by Logitech for more than $150 million. He is now the founder and meme dealer behind Stonks.com, a platform for live streaming demo days and assisting in the funding of startups by investors. We had a really interesting conversation about the origins of the product, how he has learned to match his products to existing customer demands and needs, and how he thinks about the enormous wealth that he has earned and how he deploys it. So many good conversations here, went down so many interesting rabbit holes. I think you're going to take a lot away from it. Here is Ollie Moyes. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Ollie, welcome to the podcast, man. I'm excited to be talking with you. Yeah, it's, it's great to be here, man. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I've uh, watched a couple of your shows and you've been doing this for a long time. So exci- excited to be here. Yeah. And uh, I've been doing it a long time. Had a lot of episodes. I don't know if I've ever had a meme dealer on as a guest before. So can you kick us off the role of meme dealer relatively, you know, of, of the current time, not one that, you know, we can look back and uh, see from, from, you know, decades past. What is a meme dealer at stonks.com up to? Uh, you know, just uh, pushing out the memes, you know. Uh, it's funny, stonks was... Uh, uh, the, the, the name stonks is a meme, right? It's the, 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 the whole thing, uh, from, uh, GameStop and AMC and wall street bets a few years ago and investing was sort of going crazy. Stonks is a meme because stonks only go up, right? And that's where, that's, that's where the name comes from. So I bought the domain a few years ago. I didn't know what I was going to do with it. And, uh, stonks, the company also came about as sort of an accident, uh, as we didn't know what we were doing. So we started doing these, uh, shark tank, like sort of pitch competitions, on Clubhouse and Zoom, and uh, founders would just pitch VCs. So we would have like two or three VCs on a panel. Founders would pitch them for funding, like you would on Shark Tank. But like this is happening, IRA, you know, this is sort of happening in the community, and uh, there's an audience watching, and money was changing hands. Um, it, it was kind of crazy, and uh, when that started happening, we we're like, oh, we should just do this. This is great. We should productize this behavior. And uh, that's how Stonks got started. And so to tell me if I'm misunderstanding this, this seems almost like a three-sided marketplace where you're trying to get startups coming on, looking for investment capital, investors looking to participate in um, you know, the early rounds of some of these companies. And then also my interpretation from, from 
poke around the site is event organizers. So there might almost be like this third party in the way that like South by Southwest or some of these events are proxies for getting these two parties together. The event organizers that has that network and wants to kind of more or less play host has the capability to do that on, on stonks. Is that an accurate kind of summation? I think so. Um, you've, you, you've, you've described it quite well. I think there's three, three main parties on the platform and that's exactly right. There's the hosts, the ex accelerators who are organizing demo days, and then there's investors and founders, obviously, um, um, pitching for investment. Uh, we've started by really sort of focusing on the hosts, the people who organize demo days. So we have we have about seventy accelerators on the platform, uh, which is kind of crazy. In one place, we do more demo days than anyone else on the planet. About twenty a month now, so it's wow. a really convenient place for investors to go find incredible, you know, high quality vetted deal flow that other VCs are well-known angels are investing in. So like we've had Sequoia and recent Lightspeed, Bessemer, Excel, Greylock, um, you know, uh, most of the top VCs and investors on the platform at some point, you know, either on a panel or investing, um, or, or doing their own event. Um, um, it seems to be working. So off to a good start. And can you explain the business model that underpins this? Because it, you know, like the crowdfunding sites, they'll more or less take a, a cut of the you know fundraise that they're able to facilitate. Um, you know, other you, your past company sold to Twitch. Twitch is selling advertising, not you know they they have the kind of gifting and other elements of the business, but they're they're a media company as much as they are a um, you know commerce platform. How is Stonk set up as a as a business? Yeah, so my last startup was in the Twitch space, um, and uh, you know we paid out a billion dollars to content creators. Um, it uh, Twitch makes a lot of revenue from ads, but it also makes a significant amount of revenue from commerce, subscriptions, tips, um, and uh, merchandising, other other sort of forms of commerce that are connected to the creator economy, the attention economy. Um, in our space, you know, you're right. Crowdfunding platforms typically keep a cut. Uh, we don't do that because we are, you know, we're, we've always tried to optimize for the highest quality deal flow. And um, if you start keeping a five, ten percent cut or whatever on deal flow, you know, you're not going to get the best founders. You're not going to get the best deals because they're already oversubscribed. You know, so if a founder is raising like two million dollars for like a seed investment and they already have five million in commitments, they don't need to pay five percent fees you know, they're already oversubscribed. And so those are the kinds of deals where we want more of on Stonks. Um, so our business model, you know, we haven't done that. That's also another reason why we haven't done crowdfunding uh, is a lot of the best investors and best founders still prefer to raise um, uh, 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 through the standard angel and VC channels. Um, so business model is something we're still working on. Uh, the platform is less than a year old, right? So still very, very new. So we've really focused on sort of making sure we build something people want to use first and then deliver value as measured in dollars, like amount of uh, dollars changing hands from investors to founders. So that's roughly around 10 to $15 million a month now, uh, which is amazing to see, right? We're delivering that value. So, so real money is changing hands um, every single month, even in this like massive downturn, which, you know, uh, we could talk about because it's sort of top of mind for everyone. Um, the business model, I think eventually is going to be sort of, 
uh, either subscriptions or sort of Gary, uh, you know, um, uh, similar to like what AngelList does or other other folks in the space. Got it. And it seems like AngelList would almost be like a potential acquirer because they're not really creating media like this, but they do try to occupy that nexus. I'm not, maybe you can't comment on that, but like they do occupy this nexus of what does the startup need? How do we provide it? What does the investor need? How do we provide it? And, you know, what they need is the ability to basically scale their ability to see more companies. And if they're instead of traveling to demo days or, you know, hiring a venue, the fact that it can be digitized is this huge boon from an efficiency and, you know, even a funding cycle. I talk with founders all the time and they'll talk about, you know, we had to spend months and months and months focusing on raising the next round, which is time that could be deployed against product against hiring against all these other objectives that they have completely i mean i've i've been a founder all, all my life uh been an investor engine investor the last few years but fundraising sucks man fundraising is horrible it's a necessary evil um you know um it, it can you know it'll typically take like four to six months to do a funding round and for that time period sort of the founder's attention and energy is sucked away from the business it's incredibly distracting it actually hurts the business you know and and so much of the content is repetitive right so like if you do 40 meetings with investors 80 percent of the content is like the same you're going through your pitch deck you're doing a demo you're answering mostly the same questions so like we kind of think like a live format where you pitch hundreds of people at once and that's the first meeting right and then you get highly qualified, very warm second meetings as bottom of funnel. Is that actually an incredibly efficient use of time for, for founders? And that's why people do it, right? That's what that's what the whole point of a demo day is. That's why Y Combinator sort of has popularized the structure they've been doing for 15 years. Um, is um, a demo day is uh, an efficient way to reach, to get your message in front of many investors at once uh, who are vetted, qualified, and are interested to, to learn more. It's interesting how actually common that experience is of funding, regardless of stage, because you're talking about this really at like a seed demo day, early, early stage. But we had uh, Henry Shuck from Zoom Info on, and he talked about how, you know, they were one of the, the first big IPOs post pandemic where everything was remote. And it, it used to be the road show where you hop on a plane and you go to every, mm-hmm. you know, kind of major metro for uh, to talk to institutional investors. And he just did the exact same thing, uh, you know, via teleconferencing instead. And he was like, I felt like I was going insane by hour eight, just literally telling the exact <laughs> same story over again. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's such a waste. Um, and so, you know, we're trying to make, make it a little bit better, save time, right. Save hours turn four months into two weeks. Right. And if you could do that, that's like an enormous, um, uh, uh, enormous sort of uh, quality of life change. It, it saves the saves a, an entire quarter of the founder's time, and and they can focus on the business. Um, I think you know we're a toolkit in the fundraising toolbox, and and we are mostly seed and early stage. To your point, AngelList is an amazing tool in the tool in the same toolbox. You know, there's other tools as well, Garda, uh, other tool providers. Um, uh, you know. Uh, uh, data tools like NFX Signal and others that help with fundraising, cap table management tools, other things out there. So, so we think of ourselves as another tool, right? We're not we're not replacing anything. It's just another really useful tool that for the right founders at the right stage, this can be super useful. Um, we've also started uh, working with later stage founders, so Series A, Series B, and later. Uh, there's an event happening today um, on Stonks. 
um, uh, from a fintech startup called Alts, um, um, alts.co, and they're doing something called a customer round, right? Which is, which is a very different archetype. So we're using the same live streaming sort of format platform, but uh, this is a new construct, almost as important as a demo day, right? But very new that I think is sort of part of the future is demo days are great. You know, people do them, um, but a customer round is where a later stage startup that is scaling, that has found product market fit, is now turning their best customers into owners on the cap table, right? So, so allocating a portion of their round for their community. And, and this is the Web3 ethos, right? Part of the reason why like Web3 has been so alluring and so powerful is like every single user is a token holder and an owner in your protocol. Right. And so people love it. They're like, oh, of course, like if I have part of the upside, I have a stake, I have skin in the game. Like, of course, I'm going to talk about the protocol. I'm going to be active in the community. I'm going to evangelize, evangelize, evangelize. Right. And um, it, it's sort of that ethos done in a Web2 compliant way, if that makes sense. Right. And so we, we dog fooded this. We, we, um, we did a customer round for Stonks when we, rate, we did our seed back in January, um, raised 12 million off that. A big chunk was just our community. Um, A16Z was in the round, but there was no lead. Like it was like a big chunk of it was just our community investing in stonks. Um, and since then, we've been doing this for other startups as well. Um, so it's a pretty cool format. Angelist is sort of the biggest example of this. They just raised, I think, a, it's a multi hundred million dollar round. Tiger Global led it just before uh, at the start of the year, and forty four million of that was raised by investors on AngelList, you know, users on the platform investing yeah. into AngelList. I was I was one of them. I was a tiny, tiny part of that. But, uh, you know, now I'm like invested in AngelList success, right? And right. they've locked me in, they've retained me, and they've got a brand ambassador. So it's like, it's like incredible retention, lock-in and marketing, uh, and, and your users are paying you for the privilege of doing so. Yeah. So, I mean, just to even cite another example, um, we've covered on this channel a company called Symbotic, which is automating uh, warehouses. And two of their biggest customers are Target and Walmart. And what do you know, in their most recent deal, uh, those were the two lead strategic investors. So that, the, the, the concept of a strategic investor is, I think, grain, gaining prevalence, partially from the standpoint of these large corporates you know, setting up their innovation department or their head of innovation to try and not only push their, you know, capabilities forward with the, the most cutting edge technology, but also create that upside for the business. Uh, but what you're saying is basically that can happen more effectively. So, so, so if I'm say, hearing that correctly, it, it's more like you invite all of your customers or all of your biggest customers to this specific live stream that's also public facing content. Am I, am I understanding that correctly from a, from a customer round standpoint? Because I would think that that's almost like very traditionally like a boardroom conversation as opposed to some sort of public facing piece of media. Yeah, you could, you know, people could do it public or private, right? Um, if, if they just want their customers, they could do a totally private event. Um, on stonks, um, often, that, that's one on, of the capabilities? On, on stonks, yes. Got it. So, so we, we support both, right? It's really up to, up to the startup and founder. Um, uh, but a lot of founders also are, uh, you know, they want to do public events because they want to get net new investors who could be customers. Right. So it works particularly well, at least on stocks right now for like fintech startups, for investing startups, 
for startups that are targeting, um, you know, decision makers or execs uh, as customers, because a lot of those people are the people within the stocks community, right? So we have have about 40,000 LPs on the platform. They're often decision makers at big tech companies, execs, CMOs, CPOs, CEOs, uh, director of engineering, et cetera, et cetera, because they're, they're accredited investors, right? To be an accredited investor, typically you have to be doing well in your career. You're a decision maker somewhere. Um, and uh, these are the people that founders want on their cap table, right, as, uh, as, as users as well. So, so, so some really successful examples of customer rounds have been Latitude, um, uh, 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 Equi, which is building um, a, a, a wealth management tool for sort of family offices to give them access to the same tools that like Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley have an alternative asset investing that's not available to individuals. Um, uh, so, so these sorts of things have done really, really well. Got it. So in your, your history, you t- you've talked about being a serial entrepreneur. Um, I see a bunch of different things founded in, in your LinkedIn experience here, but you know, the two big ones that I, I flagged in my research here were peanut labs, which, uh, it says was acquired for $30 million, um, which was a survey company. And then Streamlabs, which we've also partially referenced, uh, which was a kind of a amendment to the user experience for Twitch, but was actually sold to Logitech um, for $145 million. Now, when I looked at some headline, it said $97 million or $89 million or something like that was the, the acquisition price. How, do, how does that get wrong? How, how is that so often wrong, like a headline number compared to, like, obviously you were there, so you would know unambiguously. You're, you're you know getting first firsthand uh, reporting. How is that so often misreported? Yeah, it's just uh, sort of based on deal structure, right? So I, I had a conversation with um, their PR teams about this and they're a public company. So they, they had like strict standards on what they could report and when. So the actual deal ended up being even larger than 145. I think it was around the 170 million range. Uh, and, and the difference was around 90 million was paid up front. And the rest was sort of earn out and performance kickers uh, over like a couple of years that if we hit, like it would automatically unlock um, more shares. Uh, And, you know, some of the payout was in shares of Logitech, which is publicly traded. Right. And the share price like did really well during that time period as well. So like the 145 turned into like more, I think like around 170, 180 uh, by the time it was paid out. Got it. And so that's why the only thing that isn't like founder or CEO is general manager for nine months at Logitech because you were completing the earn out there. I, yeah, yeah, I was, I was, you know, uh, holding up my end of the bargain, making sure we hit our numbers and the business was in a stable sort of great place and uh, uh, left it with a couple of uh, really great folks who've, who've actually since then exceeded expectations and crushed numbers. And um, I think this, this thing is like already paid for itself in the last two years. That's awesome. So I'm curious, you said, you know, Stonks is a, a little over a year old. You've already raised uh, a, a substantial amount of funding for the company, but also just generated, I, I believe you said 15 to $20 million in uh, invested capital being facilitated by the platform or enabled by these demo days that you guys are running already in, in such a short period of time. Um, what, what tends to happen, and we see very often in the show, is knowledge compounds, networks compound, um, you know, some people call it wisdom, experience, whatever you want to, intelligence, whatever you want to call it. Um, what are some of the mistakes 
that you made in the early days of these still successful companies, Streamlabs and Peanut Labs, that you are explicitly avoiding with stonks? It's a great question. Um, I think we're still making this mistake. It's very, very hard to avoid when you're in the trenches, but a big difference has been instead of trying to invent new products or invent new user behavior, we're trying to productize existing user behavior, right? So what does that mean? That means that when, even before we started and built anything, uh, we were doing community events where uh, people were, founders were pitching VCs and it was very demo day-esque, right? And we saw people spending money, changing hands, actually writing checks to founders. And that was happening offline with no website, entirely on Zoom or Clubhouse, no line of like, you know, it was like Google Docs, Airtable, and like uh, Zoom, right? That was the workflow. And uh, so that was like an existing user behavior. And we said, oh, that's cool. This is working. We should productize this for ourselves. So we did that. And then we discovered that a lot of other demo days in the space, that was their workflow. So like, it, this is crazy, but some of the biggest accelerators were just doing Zoom and streaming to YouTube and using Google Sheets and Airtable and like PDFs to kind of manage that whole process. And, um, you know, when it came time to wire money, they were like, well, go talk to the founder who would then spin up a lawyer. And then even that process was entirely manual, right? So this, this was existing user behavior. So instead of trying to change that, we said, okay, let's just productize around this and make this better. So... So like what we didn't do, for example, was say, okay, here's a completely different way to pitch and you have to learn how to do it. And this is very different than what you're used to doing today, right? So that stuff tends to not work. And that's, you know, we spent many years sort of trying to do that at my previous startups. And, you know, it's, it's, it's hard. It's like, it like rarely works, uh, can work, but it's rare. Um, and it's much easier to sort of First, accept and internalize existing behavior and then productize for that. In the past, can you talk about either being dragged, kicking and screaming to that reality or when the light bulb came on or, or when it started to click that that was the way forward and you know you can maybe stop um, just your furious effort to little results? That is, this is very common with startups, right? There's plenty of people that like they, they want things to be a certain way. They, they want to push their... And it just doesn't go. It's going to take a lot of time, a lot more time than they have, a lot more runway than they have. How did you come to appreciate that lesson? You know, it, I think someone smarter than me said this, Nawal or someone else, is um, strong opinions loosely held, right? And founders often obsess over, they're obsessed about their solution, especially first-time founders, rather than obsessing over the customer or the problem. And... Um, you know, they're, they're, they're solution obsessed because it's their little baby. It's unique. They came up with it and, you know, they, they love it. Um, and that, that, that is often what like kills startups is, uh, so I think strong opinions loosely held, um, and being really flexible, um, uh, around what you're seeing out there. None of my startups have finished the way they started like zero that has happened zero times. So every single time we've had to like change and adapt sometimes dramatically. So, so, you know, I'll tell you a story. Um, I sold peanut labs. It was, it was like a nice little exit. 
And I was over the moon. I was like, yeah, I've kind of done it. I've done the full like raise money, sell a company journey. I clearly have like cracked the code. Now the second startup is going to be so much easier. Oh my God. Like it took, you know, it took like five years um, from the time we raised money to exit to when we exited for the first hour. And I was like, the second one, I'm going to do like three years. Right. And it ended up taking like nine years. And the first four years were in purgatory. It was, it was just like, Pivoting, trying new things, mostly didn't work. I think my co-founder, Murthy, wrote a blog post around um, how he did something like 21 startups in 15 months. Um, You know, some of those had revenue and users and it was just a lot of failing. And, uh, uh, you know, what I will say is the one thing that never gets easier is product market fit. No matter how many times you've done it before, right? The exception that if you're like in B2B type of industry in exactly the same vertical again and again and again, you could do the same thing or different variations of the same thing. That's fine. But product market fit, if, if, if uh, you know, you're in different industries or in consumer, uh, it never gets easier. It's incredibly hit driven. So, um, yeah, nothing I've done has finished the way it started. What about the network and the ability to open doors? Because on one hand, you have your reputation in the sense that you have now sold startups. So that, so that is one thing that at least you know reduces friction a little bit in terms of, hey, this person has, has shown that capacity to operate. But also just being in Silicon Valley for a while, um, having raised money before for some of those investors, giving them that positive return. In this instance of stonks, how how did the network compounding over the course of your career lead to certain things being more straightforward or easier, or or maybe they didn't? Yeah, I mean, there's that great quote, right? Compounding interest is the greatest force in the universe, right? And um, you know, Naval talks about this, and um, I think there's there's like a Greek quote from Archimedes: "If you give me a lever long enough, I can move the world." Right. Yep. So, so the idea of leverage. Um, things that compound over time are relationships, um, especially positive relationships, positive sum relationships where you've delivered a lot of value to, to people and, uh, uh, over time, um, capital compounds obviously really, really well knowledge compounds. Um, and so, yeah, um, uh, to your point, fundraising, uh, has gotten progressively easier for me just having done this a few times, right? Return capital, everyone made money. Um, you know, Sequoia funded my last startup and they made, they made a, a nice return. Um, everyone made money and nobody lost money. So, so that's something I'm, I'm very sort of cognizant of. I've, I've been in the Valley, uh, uh two decades and, uh, n- I've never lost investor money, knock on wood, doing startups. Um, so I want to keep that going. Like it maybe is not always a hundred X return, right? But everyone has always made money uh, with me. So I want to keep that going. And even when like something fails, I will typically just try something else. So like, you know, usually there will be something that works and uh, shareholders will still make money and get a return, right? Um, so Naval, for example, founder of AngelList invested in... Um, invested in Streamlabs in the early days, right? And um, he saw it pivot many times until it sort of um, came to its final form and he made money. And, um, you know, a lot of founders, often when something doesn't work, they they give up and they're like, yeah, it didn't work. Here's, you know, 
your remaining 50 cents on the dollar back, I'm done, like this didn't work, right? Uh, or they will keep trying, run out of money and just like um, uh, give up too easily. Um, um, and then go start a new company, right? With a clean slate. Like it's easier to do that as a founder, but it hurts all the people who've come with you on your journey before your investors, your employees obviously lose their jobs, investors lose their money. So uh, I've tried to avoid that and I've tried to sort of make it a positive sum game for everyone. And so that has compounded over time. So Naval basically wrote me a check for like this new company without knowing what it was or what it was going to do um, uh, simply because of that. And I think in life that's important is it's important to 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 deliver, um, you know, on your promise, whoever, whoever you work with. Yeah. And it's only attainable through years and years and years of diligence. Like there's, there's no world in which you start, I mean, maybe you're, you're born to multi-billionaire parents, in which case it's like, what's even going on there anyways, in terms of just needing a, to fund your startup. But like for every normal person that's out there, you, you've earned that through your capacity and your work ethic and the stuff that came before. Completely. And, and, and you know, I, I, it's crazy. I saw this interesting study the other day where um, it's actually a curse being born into money because uh, most people are incredibly unhappy. They're always afraid of losing versus folks who come from nothing and, and then make something. Um, and something like 70% of um, second generation uh, kids uh, who uh, have been handed a lot of money lose it all. And by like the third generation, I think that number is like 90%. So yeah. it's like, what, what is even the point, right? Even if you make a billion dollars, like it's a curse giving it to your kids because either they're going to lose it. They're not going to have any ability to sort of fish for themselves and they will live unhappy lives, always worried about fear of loss. Um, and by the third generation, it'll be gone anyway, statistically speaking. So if, if you don't mind me asking, well, how does that influence what you're doing with the money that you've already made? Because I, I don't want to be too presumptuous, but given this, the size of that Streamlabs acquisition, you're probably in a, a more or less post-economic uh, situation where it's not really the primary driver anymore in terms of financial security. So how, how do you think about that, whether that's, you know, charitable giving or obviously doing angel investing, but like, you know, the next generation, how do you think about something like that? You know, it's a good question. I, um, I think startups, one of the biggest advantages you have is speed of execution and, and desperation, right? And unless people are desperate, like it's very hard to make something like a startup work. And that desperation comes from actually needing to make it work. Like it, it can't be contrived, right? You read all the books in the world and do all of the whatever, you know, uh, um, either you have to be like incredibly passionately vetted to like a life-changing problem that you've experienced personally that you need to fix. Um, you know, like someone in your family has had cancer and you want to work with cancer therapy, for example, right? Um, or you know you need to be you you need to be desperate. You really need to make it work. And I think wealth changes that. Like if you've had some measure of success or wealth, uh, it's it's very difficult to be in that position in that same boat. So I think you know. Um, and again, it's 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 a curse, right? It's it's great, but it's also a curse because it it makes it often makes people lazy and um, 
uh, you know, jaded. Uh, uh. So the way I think about it is I think there is, um, you know, giving it to your kids. I, I have two kids. I love them. Uh, giving it to your kids is like the worst thing you can do. Um, you know, so beyond just like, you know, a certain amount that sort of is just a safety net for them. And, you know, you pay for their college and set them up on their feet and all that. So beyond that, anything else is just setting them up for failure for the rest of their lives. So giving it to your kids is a terrible idea. Um, and, you know, uh, I'm not like a big spender, like, you know, uh, don't buy any, uh, I don't buy anything crazy. Um, and so I think charitable giving is, is incredibly fulfilling. Uh, keeping a certain amount just for the safety and security of your family, right? Uh, but beyond that, I think, you know, invest it or give it away. And and that way, your bank account is empty. And so you're you're still hungry, right? To make it, to, to do something, to have impact and, and figure out your next thing. Um, but if you, if you, if you just keep, at least for me, if I, you know, if I just kept the money, I, I think I just would not have been able to do another startup. So giving it away, investing it, doing things productive, you know, just getting it out of here was very important for me personally. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting, an interesting thing to contemplate and, and, you know, it's a privileged few that get to truly comp contemplate it, you know, well before their, their last years. And, uh, it's just an, an interesting, I'm always, I'm always fascinated by the characters that continue to have the, you, you want to call it creative mojo or desire for the game. Uh, not necessarily, I, I don't think I want to like die in the chair necessarily. Like at, at some point you, you, you got to go relax and enjoy yourself. Um, but I, it's, it's, it's a fascinating character type that they've done so much work to not just build the network, but the skills, the capabilities. And they also simultaneously have all the desire and energy necessary to go make the new thing. So it's uh, it's a privilege to get to talk with you about that and to uh, just, you know, open up that brain a little bit and understand it. Yeah, of course. Of course. Um, you know, I kind of feel like um, this is when we all get to be our most dangerous, you know, because we've been at it for a decade or two, right? We've built up some skills, network, expertise. And so like giving up on the game now is like such a loss, you know, such a waste. <laughs> is the damage I think you could do now, I could do now for the next 10, 15, 20 years is going to be like way more interesting than what I've done in the last 10 years, right? So it feels shit like a waste to stop now. Is Is there a degree to which you feel like you just can see higher heights now because I, like I'll give you an analogy that I've used before on this show, but it would be helpful to just contextualize for you. I can remember the first sale I ever got in my business, which was just for a couple hundred dollars. And I was like over the moon. I can't believe that anyone would pay us for anything. And that, that, that's like nothing. That's a pittance. You can't even keep the lights on. Right. And you slowly work your way up to selling bigger deals. And I'm sure in the same case, you know, raising larger rounds of funding or selling companies for larger sums from that standpoint, yeah, maybe conceptually, like you can read a headline like, you know, Oculus got purchased for this many billion or Slack got purchased for 28 billion or whatever the thing is. And like, you can maybe vaguely wrap your mind around what that number is, but in terms of executing against a bigger vision, how do you feel like specifically you have that capability in a way that perhaps you didn't fully have baked back when you were at Peanut Labs? Oh, I was so stupid and 
young and foolish. Uh, but I think, you know, it's it, it's helpful to be naive going into something, right? Not knowing everything. Um, skepticism is like a big problem as you get older and more experienced. And the more times you've been through something, uh, people tend to be very skeptical. This is why often you'll see founders who've done really well in an industry not want to do anything with that industry, <laughs> even invest in it. <laughs> they will go do, do other things. Um, so, um, um, yeah, you know, uh, I, I think I think there's a lot of like I've seen that before. I've seen that problem. I know how to solve it. Uh, there's a lot of um, confidence that comes. You know, um, you're not you're not as uh, anxious and nervous anymore. Uh, you know, one of, one of my favorite books is sort of um, "Only the Paranoid Survive," um, right by uh, the founder of Intel. And uh, talks about how Intel had to completely change its business from being in memory chips to processors, microprocessors, when like the whole company thought it was a dumb idea, but the, the Japanese were eating their lunch on memory chips. Um, and uh, I think as a founder, there is, an, you know, you have to be paranoid and you have to have a certain healthy level of paranoia and anxiousness. And in younger founders, it's, it's, it's a little too much. So as... Now I think I have less of that and it's a lot more healthy, but I still worry about like X, Y, and Z. And it's a lot easier to think about what is the most important thing at any given day or week or month and be able to say cleanly, like, look, if we do this, we win. If we don't, we lose. Right. And, um, without being too over anxious. Uh, so I think that's been helpful. Um, you know, um, yeah, I don't know if I answered your question. <laughs> no, I, I think that it, it's it's one of those like intangible things. And it, 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 if someone's just trolling across the surface, doesn't have a lot of context, they, it's hard to appreciate. But anyone that's been in the game, they know that anxious feeling, particularly just speaking from my own experience, the first couple years, honestly, it was like, is anyone even going to get this? Like, are, like are, 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 am I just, am I even good enough? And now it's like, okay, I know I'm good enough. I can figure it out. It's, it's, it's going to take a lot of hard work. Maybe this isn't the perfect idea. But you don't have that like just baseline. I've never done it before. I have no proof whatsoever. So that it makes sense that that is, uh, you know, transformative in terms of allowing you to aim a little bit higher and um, take a bigger swing. Totally, yeah. You know, once you've had a few small wins, you can go for bigger wins. Yeah, right. Uh, Ollie, this has been fantastic. I want to aim towards wrapping up and asking our. I want to aim towards wrapping up and asking our standard last two questions. Uh, but before I do that, was there anything you were hoping to share today that I didn't give you a chance to? Uh, no, this, this was a great conversation. I kind of feel like we went down a lot of interesting rabbit holes. <laughs> yeah, I enjoyed talking with you and I, I appreciate you uh, humoring all my, my silly questions. If folks want to learn more about Stonks uh, and, and you and everything that you guys are up to, what digital coordinates can we provide people to learn more? Uh, you know, follow us on Twitter, uh, stonks underscore dot underscore com. Um, it, if, if nothing else, we'll make you smile. We post silly memes every day. Um, uh, and uh, you can follow me on Twitter, Ali, A-L-I underscore Moise. Um, you can also reach out to me at Ali at Stonks if you're a founder or an investor uh, or you're doing an accelerator. Um, you know, we'd love to uh, 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 talk to you uh, for Stonks uh, and, and help you get funded. Um, but, uh, 
uh, I guess I'm, I'm on Twitter more than any other social platform. There's some pressure when you, when you decide to name the business stonks, I know you kind of were opportunistic <laughs> in grabbing that URL, but you got to be able to bring the memes or else it's, there's almost like a little bit of, uh, you know, not delivering on the promise of such a name. Yeah, totally, totally. Uh, you know, so we try, we try, we try. I don't think we're, we're, we're we always deliver, but you know, we try to, we try to bring uh, the shit posting and the memes and the, you know, uh, we, we try not to take ourselves too seriously. That probably makes the the building even more enjoyable. Uh, we're gonna link all that in the show notes. You can find it in the app. We're probably listening to this right now, or at goingdeepwithaaron.com slash podcast for every single episode of the show. Ollie, before we let you go, I would like to give you the mic one final time to issue an actionable personal challenge to the audience. I've never had uh, someone ask me that before on uh, on one of these. What super interesting question. Uh, something that I'm going to do um, over the next few weeks is um, clean up my calendar, um, remove 20, 30% of things that really don't need to be there um, and, and use that time for, for personal development, whether, you know, exercise more, read a book. Um, but uh, my calendar is just way too full. So I'd encourage you to try the same. Um, I think, uh, death by a thousand meetings is like a thing. So, um, less, less is more. Amen. Have you, I, I, there's some personal development guru. I'm not going to place it right now. Uh, but they talk about like the calendar and the bank account audit. Have you ever heard about that? Not the bank. I've heard of calendar audits. Yes. So, so base, basically what he'll do is like, okay, tell me what your like priorities are, what you value the most. And people are you know, my family and like these other, and then he's like, okay, show me in your bank account and in your calendar where that's reflected. And the people that are like out of synchronicity with that are always the ones who are like experiencing the most stress and, and trouble. So I love the calendar audit. Um, and, uh, it, it is, it is ground truth, right? I live and die by my calendar. My friends make fun of me because I'll put a calendar invite when we're like, Hey, we're going to go, you know, do whatever that day. Um, uh, but for me, it's like, if it's once it's in there, then I'm not going to cover it up with, you know, the other, you know, chores and, and work responsibilities that inevitably <laughs> pile up and, and want to take that space. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. And, and that's an interesting way to think about it is if like your calendar, and your bank account, are out of sync with your priorities, you're going to be unhappy and stressed. 100%. Because it. it's, it. it's your time and, and a represent, representation of your time. So, Yep. Yeah. Love it. Thanks for having Beautiful. me, Aaron. This was, this was so much fun. Yeah, Ollie, I really enjoyed uh, talking with you. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. Yeah, thank you. We just went deep with Ollie Moyes, who over there has a fantastic day. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the end of my conversation with Ollie. If you enjoyed it, there are two past conversations that you need to check out. The first is with Eric Jurgensen. He is the author of the book, The Almanac of Naval. We referenced Naval Ravikant in this interview. Eric is the authority on Naval's wisdoms and teachings. Go check that out. And then check out our past interview with Henry Shuck, who we talked to right after his IPO roadshow, which was virtual. We also get into why it is so important to build a great sales team and have the skills of sales for yourself. Two of my favorite episodes ever. You're going to really like them. And please hit subscribe because we have more fantastic interviews coming soon. Thanks for listening. Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.